Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, the professional disciplinary complaints about the conduct of Rudolph Giuliani and how they might unfold. Jennifer Rogers, member of the City Bar's Task Force on the Rule of Law, CNN legal analyst and adjunct law professor, speaks with Christine Chung, a trial and appellate attorney, former federal prosecutor and steering committee member of Lawyers Defending American Democracy, and Richard Maltz, counsel to the Legal Ethics and Professional Responsibility Group at the firm of Frankfurt Kernet and former member of the Departmental Disciplinary Committee for the Appellate Division of the Supreme Court of New York. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Jennifer Rogers. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. I'm Jennifer Rogers. I have two fantastic guests here to discuss Rudy Giuliani and the issue of professional discipline for lawyers and how those two things intersect. So I'll introduce our guests in a moment. But first, I just want to say a few words about Rudy Giuliani to set the stage for this conversation about whether he, as a licensed lawyer in New York State, should be subject to discipline for his conduct and what that process looks like. So as most of us know, Rudy Giuliani has a long history of public service. He served as the United States Associate Attorney General in the early 80s. He then was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 1983 to 89, where he earned a reputation as a mafia buster. He prosecuted La Cosa Nostra organized crime families in New York City. Giuliani then, a few years later, became the mayor of New York City uh, up until 9-11, where his leadership in the post-9-11 time period gained him the moniker of America's mayor. Giuliani then went on to private practice and uh, ran a couple of times unsuccessfully for higher office. And then, you know, he sort of, I don't want to say disappeared from the public sphere, but we didn't see a lot of what he was up to until fairly recently, a couple of years ago, when Giuliani joined former President Trump's legal team. And at the beginning in 2018, when he came on board, it wasn't clear what he was doing in terms of practicing law. Presumably, he was providing legal advice to the former president. But he was very publicly out there as a spokesperson on television and otherwise to aggressively put forward the president's positions, push back on, in particular, the Mueller investigation. And then Giuliani became a central figure in the Ukraine scandal where former President Trump asked the president of Ukraine to announce an investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, in order to help Trump's reelection prospects. That, of course, led to former President Trump's first impeachment and also reportedly led to a criminal investigation of Giuliani by his old office, the Southern District of New York. But even more pertinent to our conversation today, Giuliani has been a central figure in former President Trump's activities after the 2020 election, leading the legal effort that resulted in the filing of more than 60 lawsuits in states won by President Biden, in which Giuliani and his colleagues alleged widespread voter fraud and various procedural irregularities and sought to overturn the election results in certain states that were won by Joe Biden. As part of that effort, Giuliani, along with the former president, cultivated the big lie, what's come to be referred to as the big lie that President Trump actually won the election if only the legal votes were counted. And Giuliani continued with this effort and even spoke at the now infamous January 6th rally, urging thousands of Trump supporters who were there to engage in, quote, trial by combat as they prepared to march on the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the Electoral College results. And even during the siege itself, it came out later that Giuliani was making phone calls to urge senators to object to the certification. So all of this, of course, led to former President Trump's second impeachment. It also led Giuliani to be sued by Dominion Voting Machines, Voting Systems, sorry, Dominion Voting Systems, for lies that Giuliani told about the performance of the voting machines in the election. Um, And now it seems to have resulted in multiple complaints being filed against Rudy Giuliani, 
with the Attorney Grievance Committee in New York State, where Rudy Giuliani is licensed to practice law. So that's what we're talking about today. What Rudy Giuliani has done, whether that conduct comports with the professional responsibility standards for lawyers in New York State, and what all of that means for Giuliani's future as a practicing lawyer in New York State. And I should also say that, you know, much of what Giuliani did was in the form of public statements, uh, press conferences and the like. For a long time, he didn't appear as a lawyer whose name was on any of the papers. But then he did end up coming in on one very notable lawsuit in Pennsylvania where he argued uh, a motion to the court. And so many of the complaints about his conduct stem from his participation in that lawsuit, where he actually, for the first time in many years, was practicing law. And that's uh, the case of Trump versus Bukvar. So with that background, I want to introduce my guests today. We have with us Chris Chung. Chris is a very experienced trial and appellate lawyer who specializes in white collar defense, internal investigations, transnational matters, and complex business litigation. Chris worked for 12 years at the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office in both the civil and the criminal divisions. Uh, and at the end of her time, there was the Chief of Criminal Appeals. Um, I should say I was lucky enough to work with Chris when we were both at SDNY. Chris also spent several years as a senior trial attorney at the International Criminal Court at The Hague, prosecuting war crimes and crimes against humanity. She then uh, spent some years in private practice back here in New York, and she currently serves on the steering committee of an organization called Lawyers Defending American Democracy, which was founded just in 2019. And I, I will ask Chris about that in a bit, but first I just want to say welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We are also joined today by Richard Maltz. Richard is counsel to the Legal Ethics and Professional Responsibility Group at the Frankfurt Kernet Law Firm. Richard has 30 years of experience in the professional responsibility field, and among other things, he represents lawyers before the disciplinary committee. Richard also served for 12 years on the Departmental Disciplinary Committee for the Appellate Division First Department. Richard has chaired many, many professional responsibility and professional ethics committees at bar associations. He's authored many, many articles, taught law school classes on professional responsibility. Richard is our professional responsibility guru. He knows everything about this. So he is the one who's going to describe the process to, it, to us about what Rudy Giuliani is uh, about to embark on, given these complaints. So thank you, Richard, for being here today. Thank you. I just like to make, uh, Jennifer, I'd just like to make two corrections. I wasn't on the committee. I was on the chief counsel's office who works for the committee. It's nuanced, but it is, it is different. <laughs> okay. Chief counsel's office. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, Richard, is to just give us a little flavor of what is professional discipline? What does that mean? If you're a lawyer in New York, what do you have to be concerned about with respect to professional discipline and, and the rules that apply to lawyers? Sure. Um, and just a very another quick disclaimer, I'll not be opining on Mr. Giuliani's conduct. I am going to discuss the process. Um, and so in terms of what is professional discipline, professional, as we all know, the right to practice law is a, a privilege, not a right. And professional discipline is to um, uh, either be critical of a lawyer's conduct privately or publicly or to remove the lawyer uh, as a uh, rule the lawyer from being able to practice to deter that lawyer and others from engaging in certain conduct. So it's a licensing issue, but it can also result in just criticism of the lawyer's conduct to deter that lawyer from engaging in that conduct again. And what are the professional responsibility rules that govern lawyers' conduct? Like who, what, what are these rules? Who creates them? And, and they, I assume, apply to all lawyers who are practicing in the state? That's correct. And it's uh, state by state. And New York has its own rules of professional conduct. And its rules are uh, the rules of professional conduct. Um, they're adopted by the courts, by the administrative board in New York, which is all the, pre uh, all the presiding justices and the chief judge. And then it becomes um, the uniform rules across the state. So that's how it's adopted. It's uh, 
a lot of times the, the rules are adopted by the recommendation of bar associations, the New York State Bar Association and others, but it's the administrative board of the court system that adopts the rules. And currently uh, it is the rules of professional conduct. And how are these rules enforced? Like who are the, the people on the attorney grievance committee who enforce these rules against uh, lawyers? Uh, each committee in each department, um, there are four departments as, as you know, um, and each department, appellate division, regulates the practice of law within its department with the Court of Appeals ultimately deciding. And it's those appellate divisions that um, choose the committee members to be on the committee. Um, they're composed of lawyers. There's also a layperson component. It used to be a, a third and two thirds, one third lay people, two thirds lawyers. I'm not sure that's exactly how it's done anymore, but it's lay people, mostly lawyers, and lawyers chosen by the appellate division of that jurisdiction to sit on the committee. And the committee considers the, the facts and it makes a recommendation. Who makes the ultimate decision about what discipline, if any, will be meted out to a, a lawyer? Well, you have to break it down a little bit. If the case is going to be either dismissed or a letter of advisement, which is not discipline, it's just a slap on the wrist to say, don't engage in that conduct again, you were really close to going over the line or a private admonition, which is disciplined, but private and completely confidential, that's decided by the committee on the committee level. Um, and there's um, multiple members uh, review the case after the facts are, are um, um, investigated and they decide on that level. If it's gonna be a censure, suspension, or disbarment, only the appellate division can order that and it's on the recommendation of a referee who's chosen by the appellate division to hear the facts. Um, but ultimately, and there's nuance there, but ultimately it's the appellate division that makes a decision in any public discipline. Okay, great. Um, now, Chris, we all, I think, want to hear about what it is actually that Giuliani did that, that may warrant some sort of action according to the Lawyers Defending American Democracy complaint. Uh, and I want to come back to, to what LDAD is and why you and your organization felt that it was so important to speak out about this. But I'd like to do that with a backdrop of what the allegations are. So can you tell us, broadly speaking, what are the allegations in the LDAD complaint? What did Giuliani do that warrants or may warrant discipline in terms of the professional responsibility rules? So I'm happy to address that. And I would say at the outset that the complaint was authored by LDAD, which is the organization of which I'm a member, and also Bruce Fine, who's the former associate deputy attorney general under Ronald Reagan. And also, um, um, the Ferrella Braun firm in San Francisco was a, it was a co-author. So with that clarification, the conduct alleged in the complaint all arises out of Rudy Giuliani's role as the National Coordinating Council for the election litigation. So this was all done in the course of his representation by then-President Trump and in a position to which he was appointed by then-President Trump. And the central allegations are that Mr. Giuliani engaged in dishonesty, uh, misrepresentation, deceit, and fraud, which is conduct unbecoming of a lawyer, by spearheading the national public campaign to convince the public and the courts that the election had been stolen, thereby disenfranchising tens of millions of people in basically the six contested states, the six states that, that, that President Trump, then President Trump was, was contesting. Um, and effectively, we're saying that in the timeline from November when the election was held, up through and including the effort in Congress and the march on the Capitol, Rudy Giuliani was the person who was disseminating to the public the big lie which is that saying he was saying without substantiation and knowing that it was untrue that the election had been stolen and that President Trump had won, then President Trump had won the election when he well knew that Joe Biden had won the election and there was no good faith claim otherwise. So in a nutshell, those are the allegations. Um, the rules violated include frivolous litigation, 
in, in connection with the Trump v. Bukbar case, which is the one case in which Rudy appeared and argued. In that case, as in the rest of the litigation, they were, they were, there was a stark contrast. When he was arguing to the court, he did not try to claim that there was fraud, <laughs> but the frivolousness of the claim was, as many, many courts found in the over 60 cases that were lost by the Trump administration, um, that there was absolutely no good faith basis for asking for the results of entire state's elections, including down-ballot voting, should be invalidated on the basis of the procedural irregularities that were being claimed by the plaintiffs, which usually included the Trump campaign. Um, and then in the public campaign, the idea was that in you know these quasi-congressional or or in some cases real congressional hearings and uh, sorry not congressional but but um, state legislative hearings and quasi-legislative hearings that were called by various state representatives, um, Rudy Giuliani was making the same false claims of a stolen election that he uh, falsely gave uh, try he falsely claimed that there was a basis to reject the certification of the electoral the the the, the electoral votes um uh, the representatives in congress and then ultimately um culminating in the violence on the capitol so i can address why ldad did what it did if you'd like but let me pause there yeah great i do want to hear that but first i want to go back to richard um for a moment. So this Eldad complaint um, and others, which have um, similar allegations, have been sent to the Attorney Grievance Committee, uh, at least according to those groups and, and media reports. Um, so the, the Grievance Committee receives them, presumably, and something starts, right? The process starts. Can you give us the, the nutshell version of what the process involves from you know, when they receive this information about a lawyer who allegedly has acted in ways that might require discipline and kind of take us through what happens. Sure. Um, just as a quick clarification, the committee sui sponte can also uh, initiate an investigation. Um, so that's one way. But in the scenario that, that you're asking about where a complaint has been filed, a complaint comes in, it gets in the first department, at least it gets screened by a lawyer. Um, and if it passes that screening and it's not recommended for rejection, then the complaint is sent to the lawyer for a response. If it's screened and rejected, the lawyer never knows about it. But in this case, it, 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 generally speaking, if it's not screened and rejected, it, the complaint gets sent to the lawyer. The lawyer then responds in writing at that point. Um, once the lawyer responds in writing, that writing goes back to the complainant who gets a chance to respond. And so then you have the basic record in the case. What the staff in, in the chief counsel's office usually do, if they wanna proceed further, they do what's called examination under oath, essentially an investigative deposition. And they don't have to, they can decide the case then and dismiss it. Um, but typically they will uh, ask for an examination if they wanna proceed further. They then decide whether they want to recommend an admonition, which is a private discipline, it's sealed and private, or they want to go to charges. If an admonition is issued, I won't go through that whole appellate process, but an admonition is issued. If the staff wants to recommend to the committee that they want charges filed, then charges are filed. Again, an a formal charges are filed, equivalent to sort of an indictment. An answer, a written answer is given, and then a hearing is held. And after the hearing, before a referee appointed by the appellate division, the referee can either dismiss, which is very rare, they can recommend, um, again, private discipline and admonition, um, or they can recommend to the court a censure, suspension, or disbarment. But as I said earlier, that's only a recommendation. The referee does fact-finding both as to the substantive conduct and any mitigating or aggravating circumstances and then makes that recommendation. And of course, there's process all along where both sides get a chance to brief issues and um, argue uh, both the facts and the law and what the sanction should be. And then ultimately the appellate division will decide what would happen in that case. Um, and again, only the appellate division can decide that a censure suspension or disbarment should be issued. Great, and then presumably, is there some sort of appeal after that if the 
lawyer at issue here it would be Rudy Giuliani is unhappy with the the result. Well, the the appeal is actually very limited for this reason. It's the appellate division, which is actually the court of first impression, which is a court, as you know, an appellate, an appellate court. The only place for the lawyer to appeal, they can make a motion to re-argue, which is almost never granted, but they could also appeal to the court of appeals. The problem is the court of appeals will not reverse the level of discipline. There's a lot of case, well, there's some case law on that, but they will not review and or reverse the level of discipline. The court of appeals only gets involved typically if there's a significant due process issue where the lawyer wasn't given process or there's a procedural problem or something something of that magnitude. So yes, you can appeal from the appellate division to the New York Court of Appeals, which we all know is the highest court, but um, those are rarely, those um, permission to appeal are rarely granted. And it's always, usually, I said always, usually on significant due process issues, which is very rare in itself. Great. Okay, Chris, now that we've talked about what the allegations are and how the process works, I will take you up on your invitation to tell us why this matters so much. Why is this important? Why did LDAD get involved? Um, and, and tell us a little bit about the organization too. So the organization was formed uh, around the idea that lawyers should be speaking up about enforcement of the rule of law. And, um, to gather the profession around um, using its authority to call out conduct. And as you mentioned, it was formed during the Trump administration, but it's a nonpartisan organization to, to call out when there is behavior that is threatening the rule of law and threatening democracy. And so filing a complaint against Rudy Giuliani, who is the architect and the chief purveyor of the big lie is was we considered central to our mission. And it was also something, I mean, I'm sure we know that there are other complaints that were filed with the Grievance Committee in New York against Rudy Giuliani, but we really wanted to facilitate whatever work the Grievance Committee was doing um, because this is a very unusual violation in that it was committed completely in the public eye. There's, you don't need other information other than what you watched happen to file a complaint, and in our case, we believe a pretty compelling 18-page single-spaced argument about why Rudy Giuliani should lose his law license because he doesn't deserve the privilege of practicing law anymore. Um, so uh, that was our main mission, and, and the Grievance Committee, you know, I've, I've practiced in New York for 30 years. It's a serious organization. I mean, they're, they're, they work hard all the time. They review every single complaint. Um, so I'm sure that they are working, but we really felt that regardless of the outcome, it was important to stand up and say, this is behavior that the, 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 the legal profession, let me use a word that hasn't really been used yet in this conversation, in terms of its ethics, that this violates the rules of ethics. And in fact, lawyers in New York and most other states have an obligation to call out their colleagues when they see violations of the rules of ethics. And sometimes that rule makes people nervous because they think, well, you know, the usual case is something like, am I calling out a partner who, create, who, who committed tax fraud? This is about the biggest violation of the rules of ethics that you could ever commit. Rudy Giuliani was out there lying about a stolen election, and it had a lot of victims. It had the people that he was seeking to disenfranchise. It resulted in violence and continues to result in threats of violence. It has racist overtones because he's attacking democratic cities in the ways that they voted in democratic districts, metropolitan districts that have high minority populations. And so all of those things are, are in our view, antithetical to the rule of law and to democracy. And you can't attack the right to vote. That's a fundamental constitutional right. Well, that is... Terrific. Thank you so much for saying all of that. I mean, as you know, the rule of law task force at the city bar is also something that was formed during the Trump administration to call out behavior threatening the rule of law and democracy. And so it's, it's just it's, it's very gratifying to see other lawyers band together to stand up in the same way and to do it in a way that, as you say, is so helpful to the grievance committee. It's not just a, you know, 
generic letter saying this is bad. It's it's citing the rules. It's providing the evidence. I mean, there's. I hope people do look at your complaint. Um, there's a, a big attachment that kind of sets forth all of the evidence. So um, it's uh, it's terrific. I'm so glad you're doing such good work there. Um, so Richard, most of the process that we have been talking about, the grievance committee process, is entirely confidential. So so give us a flavor of what, if anything, is public about this process? What transparency can we expect? Uh, when does the public get to learn about what happens? What do they get to learn? And and tell us why. Why is everything confidential? Why is there so little transparency around attorney discipline? Um, well, it starts with Judiciary Law Section 9010, which makes the proceedings confidential and sealed per, uh, uh, professional uh, sealed proceedings. Um, and the reason for that is to protect the reputation of lawyers who are frivolously um, charged with or um, alleged to have committed misconduct. Um, and I would say that a very, very high percentage of complaints get dismissed. My recollection used to be more than 90%, frankly, get dismissed. And so uh, I think the concern has always been, since that's the case, that um, there's no reason to make public allegations because of the famous line, where do I go to get my reputation? And that's even more so now because of the internet. Um, and so um, the, the basic policy is to protect the reputation of the lawyer until such time as there's a public decision. And I'll describe to, that to you in a minute. Um, now, the... There is case law uh, around the country which says a complainant has the right to publish their complaint and make their allegations and their First Amendment First Amendment issues. Um, I think one of the first cases is down from Florida where they said, no, a complainant has the absolute right. You can't stop that complainant from um, explaining their complaint and talking about their complaint. So um, the complainant is in a different place. However, sometimes the complainant is protected by, by the confidentiality too, if that complainant wants to complain, but not have their name out there. So the confidentiality serves two purposes, most to protect the lawyer, but on occasion to pre protect the complainant. And the process is not transparent. Um, you know, some joke, people jokingly say it's a star chamber because once the complaint in a typical case, and in this case it was high publicity. So Chris and others have publicized their complaints, but typically if it's not publicized by the complainant, it is completely confidential, never, never to be talked about until and unless a censure suspension or disbarment is ordered by the appellate division. So a lawyer can be in a, an investigation and proceeding for a year, two years, and it's not uncommon if it's going to be a charges case for a year or two years before it becomes public and only if uh, a censure, suspension, disbarment is ordered. So um, the policy is to protect the, the respondent attorney until such time as there's a proper finding. And this has been, this has been a controversial issue um, in other jurisdictions like New Jersey and others it's made public upon a finding of probable cause or the process is opened up from the beginning of the process. So New York is not is in the minority. I don't know if they're in the minority, but um, certainly the movement is to make it more transparent, but it's not there in New York yet. And at the end, let's assume that the case does involve some sort of censure or suspension or disbarment. Other than that fact itself, the the order of that discipline, what does the public get to see? Do they then get to see some sort of factual findings and understand the the underpinnings of the decision? Well, the first thing they'll see is an order, which doesn't say very much. It directs the ultimate censure, suspension, or disbarment. Then there's a decision attached, which does have facts included. I would say typically those decisions are not lengthy decisions. They tend to be rather succinct. Um, you know, they will discuss the conduct and I think they will decide if something has to be publicly said to uh, educate the bar, but they're not long, lengthy decisions. What the, but once a censure or suspension or uh, censure, suspension or disbarment is ordered, then there isn't a public file, but the public file is also limited. It doesn't open up the prosecutor's file, and as in any prosecutor's case, 
it has a limited file that's open, which is starts with the charges being filed, the answer, the decisions, uh, correspondence, I guess, during that process, memos and uh, briefs that were filed. So the, the file is open, but it's actually a limited file um, with respect to the uh, proceedings that took place during the hearing process. Well, I guess we're lucky here that if we do end up with some action on Giuliani, we have the LDAD and other complaints that, that set forth so many of the, the factual allegations then. Um, so, so Chris, LDAD recently filed a supplemental complaint. The original was filed on January 20th, I believe. And so uh, another one has been filed, which points to additional facts that happened after the date of the original complaint that bear on Giuliani's fitness to practice law. So you, you talked a little bit about this, that, that all of what he's done um, undercuts his, his right, really, his, the, the privilege that he has to, to practice law, in addition to the fact that he allegedly violated the kind of four corners of the professional responsibility rules. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about how his conduct bears not just on a technical violation of the rules, but kind of more holistically on the fact whether he should be allowed to practice anymore, generally speaking? Sure. So our supplemental complaint, which was filed in, in, on February 1st, I think it was, had basically two points to it. Um, one was that over now, we reported at the time, I think maybe a slightly lower number, but at this point, about 7,500 people have signed our complaint, including over 3,000 lawyers. So one of the things we had undertaken to do, again, to facilitate the Grievance Committee's work was to let the Grievance Committee know after publicly um, making, making our complaint publicly available, how many lawyers and citizens signed on to it. And so we were letting the committee know that that was the update on the signers. Secondly, we had asked for interim suspension, which means that while the committee is investigating, they do have the power if they believe that the evidence is uncontroverted, to recommend that Rudy Giuliani lose his license while they are continuing their investigation. And um, the, the point of our letter on that was, which I think all of your listeners will know, really, Rudy Giuliani is not ceasing his unethical conduct. He is doubling down on the big lie. And... Um, um, you know, he has made statements, I think he's raised as recently as last week, that um, he welcomes the grievance, the grievances against him because they're going to give him a chance to defend his claim that the election was stolen. Um, he's still broadcast on WABC, and he's very committed to this idea that um, he's always been, um, that it's always been substantiated and truthful to say that the election was stolen. So in our view, he is engaging in ongoing behavior that is unethical and also is dangerous. And that um, we wanted to just call to the committee's attention that, that that's happening. You know, it's, it's important to note, you know, with, with the last impeachment, for example, the second impeachment, lawyers did step back from representing President Trump. This is not something where somebody has a gun to Rudy Giuliani's head. The Dominion complaint points out quite nicely that he has many, like, probably primarily financial incentives to engage in the big lie. Um, and that, again, is conduct unbecoming of an, of an attorney. And he is one combative guy. It's like, uh, it reminds me of the My Pillow guy, right? Um, Mike Lindell, is that his name? Um, who says he welcomes the, the multi-million dollar lawsuits against him. Um, because he gets to get his facts out there. I mean, these things can't be true, right? You, you have to think that in private, Giuliani is not happy about a grievance committee complaint against him because it's a very serious matter, but he is putting on his public face. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll know what we know when we know it, but um, I think we can expect him to be combative about it throughout uh throughout the pendency of the, the matter. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so Rick, oh, go ahead, Chris. Sorry, I'll just add one thing to that. You know, it, it's consequential. A majority of Republicans still believe that the election was stolen. If you look at the poll numbers, those poll numbers are sticking very, very steady from November to, to, to this month. And so, like, you know, I, I get sort of the analogy to my pillow, but 
there's a way in which what he is he knows better. He has a legal license, and he remains an architect of a strategy that he continues to implement. Well, that and it just again underscores the difference between lawyers and non-lawyers. I mean, if you are going to have the privilege of a law license you are subject to certain rules and you have certain responsibilities. Um, And I I will say Rudy Giuliani has taken advantage of his law license as, as part of what he's done. I mean, you know, we heard him out there saying things like all of this is perfectly legal. And, you know, I, I, I promise you, this is all fine. I would stake my reputation on it, right? His reputation as a lawyer. So, you know, he's using his law license in a way to perpetuate some of these falsehoods. Um, you're right, Chris, in a way that is much worse than the My Pillow guy does. And so, you know, um, here we are with the, the grievance committee complaints against him. Um, so, so Richard, the LDAD complaint does very carefully and, and precisely lay out the, the professional responsibility rules that it says have been violated by Giuliani's conduct, uh, and then does also talk generally about his lack of fitness to practice law. So in terms of what the grievance committee does and what they consider, what the appellate division considers, how closely do they hew to the, the, the four corners of the rules themselves? Like, in other words, are they really doing a technical analysis of here's the rule, here's the conduct, does the conduct violate the rule? Or can they consider more holistic matters about his his conduct generally, the seriousness of the conduct, you know, like stealing money from a client, an individual person versus trying to undermine a national election by disenfranchising millions of voters, for example. Are they considering those broader issues in their determinations? Um, that's actually a pretty complicated question, um, and uh, we could spend the whole program just on that issue, on those issues about um, whether somebody's fit to practice. Um, so let me try to s- state as succinctly as possible my belief of how this should operate. Um, to answer your initial question, uh, for the most part, the committee and the court do stick within the four corners of the rules because there's a due process issue if you don't. How does a lawyer know that they're violating the rules if the rule is not implicated in the conduct? The one exception, and I think that Chris's complaint uh, brings out, is the fitness to practice. And that's just, everybody knows, it's rule 8.4H. And a lawyer um, violates the rules if they engage in any conduct that adversely reflects on the lawyer's fitness to practice. Now, the problem with that is, is that's a very vague standard. And uh, before my bar committee right now, we're discussing whether that rule should be um, taken out of the rules, which some jurisdictions have done. Because of that due process issue, how does the lawyer know? Well, the Court of Appeals has spoken about that issue. And in the Holtzman case, former District Attorney Holtzman, they said a reasonable, if a reasonable attorney familiar with the rules know it's a violation, then that's good enough. And so that's how they sort of reined it in a little, but there is still flexibility. So to your point, it's not like the criminal law or civil law where you look at the elements of an offense or the elements of a civil claim. It's um, <clears throat> in the fitness standard, it is conduct that may not violate a particular rule, but that reflects on the fitness, again, by a reasonable, by a re- using the reasonable attorney standard who is familiar with the rules. And I think that's a da- actually kind of a dangerous rule, and I'm not sure I support the use of that rule so much because of the notice issue. Now, Chris has argued that um, this is a slam dunk, that any reasonable attorney familiar with the rules would not have engaged in the conduct, and that's fine, and the, and the uh, committee and the court will eventually decide that. Um, but that is the standard, and uh, it's a little mushy. Uh, in certain circumstances. I know Chris's position is that it's not mushy here, and it is what it is, But uh, and as I said before, I'm not going to opine on the conduct, but it's a, it's something that is not a slam dunk. And um, to again, to Chris's point about interim suspension, that also is tricky because um, the interim suspension rules are set up not to allow an interim suspension, um, 
easily. It has to be if the lawyer is not cooperating, but more importantly, if the lawyer has admitted misconduct. And so if the lawyer is going to contest the misconduct, either factually or legally, um, I think the court would be very reticent to issue an interim suspension. Um, and I have a feeling, I don't know, that, that Mr. Giuliani will not admit he engaged in misconduct, just a guess, um, that he engaged in misconduct. And so uh, then you have a factual dispute. And I, it's not exactly the same as a summary judgment motion, but it's similar to the extent that there are factual disputes or issues that can't be resolved at this stage of the proceeding, that the court's not going to uh, uh, issue an interim suspension. And the reason is it, ba- it, it essentially takes away the, the lawyer's right to practice law. Now, you may think the facts of this case warrant that, but there are many cases where it is not warranted. And that's why the court is very cautious when they're I- issuing an interim suspension. It essentially destroys the lawyer's livelihood. They're licensed. They can't practice. They have to notify all clients. They have to notify all courts they're involved with. It's a pretty significant um, step. So, and that's particularly difficult to bring it back to the fitness issue of if the conduct is not squarely within the four corners of the rules and you're relying on fitness, there's even more so of a problem in issuing an interim suspension if there are, if there are factual questions or legal questions that have to be resolved. So, so Chris, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about what Giuliani might do as he defends himself against these allegations, which he's so excited about, apparently, according to his statements. Um, Because one of the things that we've heard most in connection with people uh, pushing against the impeachment, for example, and uh, people who've criticized the big lie and those who propagated the big lie, is that they had a First Amendment right to say really whatever they wanted to say. And so I'm, I'm sure that you you and your colleagues at LDAD thought about, and, and lots of people have been thinking about, what, if any, First Amendment rights does someone like Rudy Giuliani have as a lawyer to say these things, these false things in representation of his client? Um, what's your view about that? notion, that defense. Do you think that that provides him any sort of cover here? In short, no. (laughs) And I can explain why. I mean, first of all, I want to make clear that our complaint does allege violations of multiple specific rules. And that on the way to arguing that he's unfit to practice law, we invoke, you know, that's rule 8.4 under the New York rules. But another part of 8.4 is that a lawyer cannot engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. And Rudy well knows what a fraud is. He used to accuse people of committing fraud all the time. (laughs) Been in the chair. In terms of the First Amendment right, so, so lawyers can't lie. That goes to their fitness, obviously. And this was... You know, an extremely, you can't, as I said before, you know, this is a big lie. It's it's central to our democracy. First Amendment right, no. (laughs) Um, First Amendment problems have arisen in the context of the rules when the rule is void for vagueness. So there's a famous Supreme Court case that, that says, you know, rule says something like general or elaborate or uses phrases that you don't know what they mean, then you may be in the mushiness, um, to borrow a word from Rich. But there's also case law saying, I'm going to read to you from a Supreme Court of Kansas case, an attorney may be disciplined for criticism in the heat of a political contest if such criticism is carried beyond the limits of truth and fairness. So your First Amendment right, when you are an attorney, does not extend to lying, and it certainly doesn't extend to lying in the course of representing a client. And so we don't think we're anywhere outside the heartland. I mean, seriously, the heartland, the core of what the rules governing ethical conduct by attorneys call for. It's also just so notable, as you pointed out earlier, that, you know, you have a situation where Giuliani is saying one thing outside of court. And then when he gets into a situation where he's facing a judge and the judge is pressing him, about the facts and about the allegations specifically, it's a whole nother thing. So, you know, talk about uh, demonstrating that that he knows that 
you know, what the truth actually is and that what he says outside of court is, is not the truth. You know, I, I think that's, uh, that seems pretty obvious. Um, so, so Richard, we've talked a, a bit about this throughout um, our discussion so far, but, but this, this is a big deal, this disciplinary process. It could result if the court ultimately decides it's warranted in, in disbarment, prohibiting Giuliani from practicing law in New York State, which is, which is a big thing. Um, so, you know, one thing we've also seen, in addition to kind of a First Amendment claim of, of protecting people from lying, uh, from discipline or consequences from lying, uh, we've also seen a lot of complaints about due process. That was something else we saw during the impeachment proceedings, right? No due process. Um, and this, this, this um, process, while confidential, you had mentioned has a lot of due process protections. Um, so, so just just tell us. I mean, Giuliani will have opportunities to respond to the allegations, to provide evidence, to put forward evidence that he wants to put forward. I mean, is that fair to say that that the the process contains due process? Not to be so repetitive about the word, but there is due process in the disciplinary proceedings. Yes, there certainly is. Um, I'd like to go back to two very quick points. Um, one, I want to remind everybody that Giuliani himself can open up the process and he can ha he can make it public to the degree the confidentiality is being applied to. So just so you know, if he wants to make a circus out of this, he can um, at the hearing stage, not at the beginning stage. At the hearing stage, it can be an open hearing, which typically there's not. And the other point I wanted to make very quickly is if New York State disbars Mr. Giuliani, which is for seven years, um, and he has to get reinstated, that will be applied by collateral estoppel to every other jurisdiction that he's admitted in, federal and state. So once one jurisdiction disbars or suspends him, um, or even censures him, the other jurisdictions can use it in a collateral estoppel way, which means that he can't contest the liability or the conduct, he can only um, contest um, the sanction. And there's nuance there, but I'm just, I wanted to make sure you understood the ramifications of that. Um, there's an, uh, to get more to your question now, there's an old uh, Supreme Court case called In Ray Ruffalo, uh, where um, they decided that disciplinary cases are quasi-criminal. Um, and so in that case, it was a notice issue that the lawyer was not given notice of the charges against him. But that set the, the start, and that's an old case, uh, I think 68 uh, by Judge Douglas. That case started a basic due process requirement for grievance committees. And so there is a basic due process. As you said, you will get a chance to answer. You'll get a chance at a hearing to present all witnesses, to cross-examine all witnesses. Um, and um, and so, and then, of course, at the appellate division do the same. Um, so... There is full due process, um, and it, even though it's not like a criminal case completely uh, on the level of due process, if you can call it that, um, he will be given every opportunity to contest both factually and legally the allegations. Okay, well, we've come to the, the end of the questions that I have for all of you. Do we have any predictions or or final thoughts about this? I have to say, Rich's suggestion that um, Giuliani could could give us the transparency that maybe many of us seek by turning the the hearing part of this into a, a public matter. Uh, I think you call it a circus. I, I would kind of welcome the circus, frankly. Um, I think that would be um, educational and and very interesting to see. Uh, but but what do you think? Any final thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think for 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 from my organization, the final thought would be that lawyers should continue to call for accountability. I mean, the sad news is that, um, you know, the, the, the danger of authority or authoritarianism and danger to the rule of law is, is not over. Um, four months ago, we might've thought, well, November is going to come and go, and that will be a watershed moment. And, the reality is that a lot of America really craves authoritarian leadership in the form of Trump or somebody else. And in that, in that environment, it's very important for professionals, for lawyers, for doctors, for businessmen to stand up when the rule of law is being threatened and 
you know, for our complaint, hundreds of law professors, former judges, former members of grievance committees have have spoken up, and there are still huge constituencies missing. You know, Wall Street law firms are missing. I, I don't think that they feel differently about it. So we have to do some work on, as a profession, making sure that our standards are being enforced and that the public is clear that the kind of thing that Rudy Rudy Giuliani did is not something that lawyers do, and it's not something that lawyers should do. Great. Thanks. Richard, predictions, final thoughts? Yeah. um, You know, I have a more micro view of this uh, than Chris, though I think there's overlap for sure. Uh, I think ultimately the appellate division will look to the things we've talked about, whether there were substantive violations factually and legally of the rules. And the purpose of, of, of discipline, which we never, which we haven't mentioned, is to deter that lawyer, to deter other lawyers, and, and to uh, maintain the integrity of the system. So a lot of the things Chris said would be done if they if they find that Mr. Giuliani Giuliani violated the rules, and therefore it would deter him if he's suspended, it would deter other lawyers from engaging in the same conduct, which is a more global issue. And more importantly, and maybe most importantly, the public integrity, the integrity that is necessary for the public to have confidence in the system. And I think those will be the driving forces by the appellate division. And some of that will serve the purposes that Chris is talking about and serve will be more uh, more narrow with a more narrow purpose, but you get to the same place ultimately, I think. Terrific. Well, thank you both so much. This has been a fascinating look at the allegations against Giuliani and the disciplinary process as it will apply to him. And, you know, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on this to the extent we can. We know that they're they're confidential, but um, thank you both so much for your work in this area and your discussion today. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Gardaris.